Never Again the Burning by Gail Perigo Hamby, copyright 1985, read by Layla with permission of the author. It is always the morning of my execution. I know they will come for me today. Last night the jailer, pulling up his trousers, sneered, perhaps you'll fancy the pole they give you in the morning more than mine, stubborn bitch. I think he liked it better when I had strength and spirit enough to fight him. He is too stupid to lie just to torment me. I will welcome death, though the dying scares me. I was a healer. How long ago? Oh, gods, I cannot think straight any more. And I know that their gross insults to my body will never mend, and the pain is constant. And they have sworn me that I will go to the fire conscious and aware. My goddess, I am sick to my very soul with shame. At the last, I gave them screaming what they wanted, mouthed any obscenity they asked. I told them what they told me to say. My sanity remains only because your names go with me to the pyre and the grave beyond, and only there. Oh, beloved, if I could only see you one last time that your clean spirit's fire could rid me of this filth and fear. The crowd gathers now. I hear them outside, laughing, festive. God's grant I will be entertaining enough. I wonder if these pious souls who in the past have asked my help will mourn me. Well, I shall be glad to quit this stinking cell. The rats grow bolder as I decline. Oh, mother, give me strength. I hear the guards outside. What, I taunt. Three of you, all for one small, half-starved wench? Indeed, terrible I must be. They have the grace to look ashamed, the youngest one grown pale and horrified at the sight of me. I delivered his wife of a fine, strong son not many weeks ago, but now I dare not ask how the child fares. Nay, you must carry me or drag me, my fine bravos. These ruined feet will never bear my weight again. I fear I danced too long with your good priest in his fine Spanish boots. They haul me to my feet in the pain. I will not scream again for their amusement. I must go naked, then, to my death before these fools. I would not have them see me so, who danced naked for the goddess, graceful and free on winged feet without a trace of shame. Their avaricious eyes defile me as their twisted priest defiled my body's temple. There are many strangers here in the square, churchmen and villagers from all the country round. I am to be a marvelous, far-felt lesson, I see. They bind me to their stake, too tight, more agony. The splintering pole claws my raw back, my shoulders wrenched and cramping, the rough rope burning my wrists. My legs will not support me, and I sag in my bonds, and I fill with terror as a pitcher with muddy water. A priest approaches. Oh, goddess, must I suffer them even now? The crowd protests the cup in his hands. He exhorts them gently. His sect bears mercy towards all, malice towards none, and might not even such as I be saved at the bitter end? I don't know this one. I fight to raise my head, to spit in his face, for one last shred of defiance. <gasps> Mother of all, no, not you, here? How have you come, beloved, to trade your green robes for their black, your antlered crown for their cross? Surely I dream, I dream. But now I smell your clean scent, and your dear presence cloaks me in peace. Rage fires in your eyes, but your pure love sustains me, strengthens me, and warms me. You brush the hair back from my face. The cup you hold gently to my bruised lips, I gave you at our hand fasting. Softly you whisper, drink deep of salvation, my dear love. And your voice, harsh with unshed tears, rips at my soul and my own tears begin, and fully do I drink of your deep eyes and the chalice. And the taste of the flying herbs burst upon my tongue, belladonna, aconite, dark sweet dreams. They are coming now with the fire. 
Almost you linger too long, haunted eyes on mine. But as sleep steals over me, I see you melt safely into the throng. I am drifting now. I hear my mother singing far away. Strange, she has been dead these many years. The pain is gone. I am a little girl again. I am safe. My mother is calling me and I run gladly into her arms. But in the room I have left behind, someone has been careless with the supper, mother. They must turn the spit faster, for I can smell the roasting meat burning and the dinner guests are shouting. I wake in a cold sweat and cannot drink from the glass you bring me. Oh, sisters here, our daughters must not dream these dreams. We must defend ourselves, stand with our brothers, and make the arsonists let us be. Oh, sisters here, never again, never again the burning. It's witchcraft. <laughs> Hi, it's 4:20 a.m. The Stoned Witches Hour. Normally, it's time for these two best friends living on opposite coasts of the country to terrify each other with spooky stories from the east and west coast. But guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? <laughs> For episode 36, we are both on the East Coast in Salem, Massachusetts. Hell yeah. And tonight we're going to talk about a trio of delightfully wicked witchery, the Salem Witch Trials, a haunting poem by one of my favorite witches on the planet. Super fave. And the witch house in Salem, Massachusetts that was never the home of a witch. I'm your co-host, Layla. You know, I'm I'm high again. Well, <laughs> I, I am also Shell. I am in the East Coast. I am in Salem. But boy, what a high night tonight. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fabulous. I absolutely love being together with you. We have not been together in a few years. And hanging out with you is just like old times. And it, we had a blast in Salem. Oh, my God. First of all, let's, let's get into the, the nitty gritty before we start talking about Salem. You and I smoke a lot of weed when we're together. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. East Coast weed, I found going through New York, I found some of the cheapest weed I have had in forever. I am so jealous. When you told me what you were paying there, like it makes me want to drive back home to New York just for freaking weed. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I know that I have smoked multiple different kinds this week, but right now I'm smoking on something called Jealousy that I got from Fault. And I'm jealous. <laughs> it is like a 23% THC, roughly. So again, middle of the road, but excellent to get you know what, done. You know what baffles me? What's that? I've, I've spent 40-some years. We won't get into the exact number. <laughs> I've spent 40-some years living in the great empire state. Mm. I've only been in Massachusetts two years. You know, love them both, but very tax greedy places very much you're not going to get any more tax greedy than our beautiful home state of new york new york uh, yes. but we were talking about it the other night we figured it out it's literally half price so how is greedy new york getting half price i don't get it there's no taxes yet what we're gonna say we're going slightly gray market here it's not illegal Medical is fully legal and you can buy it in the stores. Recreational is fully legal and you technically can't buy it anywhere. There are ways around it. So right now I would say that maybe not all the taxes that are supposed to be added on are being added on. So I got this jealousy for 115 an ounce. Let me give you a little bit of a tax wake up call here. Let's say, so in Massachusetts, we'll say $60 because you know, prices are starting to go down. Love it. But the average, you're going to about 60 bucks an eighth. I cannot. That's a lot. No, you're going to die. Add $13 in tax. So that $60 eighth is going to cost you 73. Didn't now, we used to pay 75 for like an ounce of brick weed? No. It would get you high as fuck. That's why I like this Happy Valley in Gloucester. Love Happy Valley. We talk about them all the time. <laughs> Sponsor me, Happy Valley. Right. So, you know, Happy Valley, one of the reasons I like them, 
They have great stuff. They always are rotating their stock. So you're not having the same shit week after week, unless you want to. But Happy Valley includes the tax and their price. So when they're telling you $60, that's after tax. But if I go to another store locally, that $60 is pre-tax. So one store, your $60 eighth is costing you $73. And at another store, your $60 eighth is costing you $60. It's a racket. This tax bullshit, a freaking racket. I guess it really depends on if they want to eat that $13 or not. I just think people are uppricing this shit so much that they're willing to not make as much money and get the business as opposed to the other stores who are like, we're going to screw these people and tax them. Yeah, that's the biggest problem, I think, is that everybody's going to do it differently. And this this whole system is rigged from top to bottom. And unfortunately, there's a lot of corruption there. And there's a lot of greed there. Every state that goes legal is going to have a period where there's a lot of greed. People want to make as much money as possible before the market gets glutted with a lot of pot. And then you end up with like an Oregon situation where how much an ounce was uh, Lisa Ann paying in Northern California? Something ridiculous that made me cry. It's $45 an ounce. Some of these places can't give it away fast enough. That'll happen. It's a weed, folks. It grows quickly. But you know what? I'm greedy, too. I want a bunch of weed for a decent price. Is that too much to ask? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I want a bunch of good weed. I buy by the ounce. One thing I did find in New York that was difficult is a lot of places are only selling in eights. Um, Hello? I, I don't yeah. have training wheels. Thank you. I need an ounce. (laughs) No, what they do here in Massachusetts, you can get an ounce, but everything is packaged in eighths. They can't package it any bigger than an eighth. So you'll get an ounce in eight separate containers. So you'll get eight eighths. You're allowed to carry at least an ounce, right? Yeah. Yeah. But places don't sell it in an ounce? I mean, what is that? No, no, no. You and I have had this, this discussion since podcast episode one, okay? And now you've seen it with your own eyes. You see the packaging. Now that you know that you can't buy it in one ounce packaging, you have to buy eight eighths in those big old fatty glass jars. I love your Ziploc bags you get, but we don't sell those here in Massachusetts. And you should. New York, again, it's probably because they're not fully legal yet, but they sell. This is a really nice sealable Ziploc. I mean, it's nicer than your sandwich baggie. You know, it's the opaque, really nice bag. And that's all it is that they put your ounce or whatever you order in that. And that's all it should be. Oh my God. I just had the best stoner idea ever. You and I should run for president and vice president in 2024. And then we'll just make weed legal and we'll make it illegal for the weed stores to use the big thick glass jars. Yes. They need to have... We'll make it so that all the, the companies have to recycle their own packaging yeah. and they have to use as little packaging as possible and they have to make it out of hemp whenever possible. Shell and Layla, 2024. There you go. Win in the world. We got this. Vote for us. Anyway. <laughs> so what are you smoking on today? Oh my God. Well, you are going to be, you're going to be surprised. Our yeah. listeners are going to be surprised. I have done something that is so not like me. Ooh, what did you do? So I'm at Happy Valley. Okay, that's like you. That that part's like me. I go to Happy Valley, and I've really been liking this Endgame stuff that they have. Also like you. Ended up getting an ounce of it. Shocker. So surprised. So then I see this stuff, and it's like, no, you're going to be sad. It was like three grams for 30 bucks. <laughs> but, Ow. But they were each packaged in one gram packaging in <gasps> variety really no it was only these 12 what's the point of buying a gram is that even a bowl pack basically like one and a half the way i pack <laughs> it's called grandpa's cookies but they had 12 of them so there's grandpa cookies one grandpa cookies two grandpa cookies three whatever so then they have this is that somebody who forgot what all their seeds were like what cultivars they had so they just called them all grandpa cookies one through 12 and for real so the deal is, is you can get three different ones for 30 bucks. Now they have these big, long paragraphs. She's like, don't go by the THC because that's not the way you should look at this. Thank you. Oh, I like your bud tender already. So then I'm like, well, then how do you know? 
And she's like, read about each of them. Well, it's a paragraph that's like nine sentences long. Like, I ain't got time to read 12 of those. Jesus, Lord. I ain't at the library. I'm at the weed store. So I'm like, why don't you give me grandpa cookies number one, two, and seven? Fuck it. We'll give it a go. So I got this one here. This shit. So this one is grandpa cookies number. I can't even read it. Seven. Did you even read the paragraphs or did you just like randomly pick three numbers? I randomly pick three numbers. I got, <laughs> that's like, my shell. That's like an ADHD thing. Like I ain't just sitting there with nine <laughs> paragraphs times 12. Fuck that shit. So this one is, is grandpa cookies number seven. Maybe if you go on the Happy Valley website, you can figure out what it means. Future Layla here with an update. I did indeed go on the Happy Valley website, gloucester.happyvalley.org and checked on the grandpa cookies. Turns out Happy Valley is doing what they call a pheno hunt. Basically, when you breed cannabis seeds together, your first breeding is going to produce kind of like cats or puppies. You know, if you, you breed a poodle to a golden retriever, your puppies are going to come out looking like some will look like full poodles, some will look like full golden retrievers, and then you'll have every single kind of mix in between. That's potentially what you can get when you breed cannabis seeds together. Responsible breeders will then take those seeds and they'll take the ones that have the best qualities that they like and breed them back together until they get something that looks a lot more stable. Once you have a couple F1 Labradoodles, Lab Poodles, bred together, the babies start to look a lot more uniform. And the same thing happens in the plant world. So in this particular case, it looks like they are breeding something called Grandpa Cookies, which is Grandpa's Stash and Ethos Cookies bred together. So they're trying to find the most popular of the phenotypes. It looks like the, this cross produces 12 different distinct phenotypes or different looking and smoking plants. Again, you have that purebred poodle and purebred lab. Now you have one through 12 of all their different types of babies. So they're asking their customers to try these different type of grandpa cookies and let them know which ones they like the best. And then those are the cultivars they will continue to breed. So future Layla out. But this one is only 23%. Mm-hmm. And I'm fucking high. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fucking high. We've talked about it before that it's not just the THC percentage. There's a lot of. Yeah, but I know we talk about it before, but I never listen to you. You don't. You always reach for the highest THC first. I do. THC is not always an indicator of how high you're going to get. We think it is because that's what we've been taught to believe it is. You know, I wasn't believing you before and I was like, yeah, yeah, Layla and her THC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd still go to the store and I'd still get the highest THC. Well, you know what? I was wrong. I'll admit it. You were right. I'm high. Who, who would have thought it? Yay. I love that. I love that for you. I really do because there's so much more beyond THC. So many more chemicals and, and so many more things in cannabis that's good for you. It's going to make you feel good and get you high. So I'm kind of liking my grandpa cookies number 10. Who doesn't love some? I, I want to try something called grandpa cookies. I really do. Even it makes though- me think of Willie Nelson or Cheech and Chong. Aw, God, fuck. They're like grandpas now? What the hell? They're like great grandpas, man. Where the hell have you been? Hiding under a rock, apparently. Smoking too much weed. Smoking way too much weed. All right. So now that I got my jealousy going on over here and we're hanging out, let's talk this poem, Never Again the Burning, that I read at the beginning of the episode by Gail Perigo Hamby. When did you first learn of this poem? Yikes. Holy crap. You're taking it back a minute. This poem was written. Let's see. I want to say this was written in 1984 or 1986. Oh, you missed it. 1985. It was written. Of course. I picked it. And I read it first. I think I understand you heard it first, right? I heard it. This was actually in the early nineties. Gail had made a cassette tape. Anybody remember cassette tapes, by the way? So Gail had made a cassette tape. She read this poem. It had kind of a, I don't want to call it like a musical background, but there was like a sound was background. It her that read it or someone else? She read it. This, I would say this would have been like 19, late 1993, early 94. It shook me to my core. Hearing that for the first time, I don't know, like it changed me or it triggered something, but like it shook me. 
at the time she was uh, in the local pagan community we were a part of, she would sell these cassette tapes for a couple extra bucks. So I'd ended up buying one. And I actually would play this when I would do personal private rituals alone every single time. Very, very moving, very, very powerful, very, very touch your soul. I um I did not have the pleasure of buying a tape originally from Gail. Uh, when I first learned of this poem, I was living in upstate, way, way upstate New York in Schenectady, and I was working at a thrift store. I found this stack of magazines called Green Egg. Which oh, my a- God. Remember Green Egg? Yeah, a pagan magazine from back in the day. And this was a good 30, 35, I don't know, it was a lot of, of magazines. And I knew I had to have them. They were marked at like $3 each. I had been taught or heard or read somewhere that you never haggle over magical items. That is actually a good point. Good point. To me at the time being, I didn't know anyone else who was a witch. I I knew no other pagans in real life. I this really, was before we met. Yeah, way before we met. And so I got done with my shift. I went home. I got a ton of money out of my savings at the time there was no way I could have afforded like six or the 70 bucks or whatever for these magazines, but I had to have them. So I scraped together all my money, looked through my couch cushions, head back to work. And there was someone else behind the counter than when I had left. I'm like, Hey, I got these magazines. I'm going to pick them up. And she's like, she's looking through it. She's like, Oh, these are magazines. Why are these all marked $3? I'll give you the whole stack for $3. No shit. No shit. So it went from being like, 25 plus magazines so it would have been over 75 dollars i got it for three bucks never had to haggle it was perfect brought them home and the very first one i opened had the poem published never again the burning by no shit, that was in green egg i didn't even know that it was published in green egg i cried i bawled i cried like a baby full body chills i i swear i was seeing visions <laughs> and crying at the same time it just hit me that hard so, funny story. Did I tell this on this show before? Tell it again. <laughs> so I'm living in Schenectady, get these magazines, get struck to my very soul by this poem, and I move to Southern Tier of New York, and I meet you and other people in the community there, the pagan community. Oh my God, wait, you didn't know that Gail was a part of our community? I didn't know. Oh, that's so great. That's so, so great. I meet these new witches. I'm having the time of my life. I show them this poem and they're like, oh yeah, we know it. And I'm like, what? What do you mean you know it? They're like, oh yeah, we know Gail. I about shit my pants. I drop. I was like, what? I remember what? that. You were like, I remember that. You were like a fangirl. So fangirling. Like girl. Big time. And, and I remember a point where we were like, oh yeah, she's going to be at whatever, the next ritual at that whatever and you were like really oh my god like she's gonna be there like gail herself and we're like yeah (laughs) you're all like yeah it's gail (laughs) see from my side of it i had met gail and had been in community and done ritual with gail prior to hearing the poem whereas you were like awestruck by the poem and i couldn't believe it better yet i'm at our local barnes and noble getting a book and the woman who's checking everyone out is decked out head to toe in pentacles and gems and crystals and pagan to the core. Which if you know upstate New York, that is so not acceptable in our uptight red Republican part of the state. Like, Yeah, at the time, being out as a pagan was not a thing. And this woman was out and very proud. And her name tag said Gail. And you almost shit yourself, didn't you? I did, but I'm like, what are the odds that I would meet the actual Gail randomly here at a Barnes and Noble? And then I, then I heard somebody say, hey, Gail, Otter's on the phone for you. Well, in Green Egg, Otter was one of the names of the people who was a regular contributor or an editor. I don't remember. So I was, I lost it. I was like, this has got to be Gail. So I get, it's my turn. And I'm like, um, are you Gail? Gail Paragohamby, and she said yes. I could not believe the coincidences that had brought me to this place, from reading this poem and fangirling over this person to moving randomly to the Southern Tier and being told she's in the pagan community to then randomly running into her 
at a freaking Barnes and Noble. I, the coincidences were just amazing. You know what I find kind of interesting about your story? You know who brought me into the community? Because at the time, as you are aware, you kind of had to be quote unquote sponsored. Correct. I was actually sponsored into the community by Otter. Wow. Wow. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. And to then be able to do ritual with Gail, who, despite the pedestal that I still put her on, she's human. She's a witch. She's a pagan. She's so magical. And I adore her. But I didn't have to be so awestruck. But I still kind of am every time I see her, I think. And I love doing ritual with her. And what an amazing gift to be able to do ritual with someone who has moved you so much. And and not just you or I. I mean, she's moved between um, the publication, the, the tapes. Um, I know she's done it at, at festivals and out publicly. She's literally moved thousands of people with that. And I almost want to reach out to her and be like, hey, re-release that. It's been, what, 30, pushing 40 years? Because it, it resonates just as much now as it did in 1985. It really does. And I am so honored that when we reached out to her and she gave me permission to read this. I'm, I'm just thrilled. And I cannot believe that she, she was willing to, of course I can. She's amazing. I believe that she did, but I'm very honored. It was more of a, we didn't feel worthy. Right. We're not worthy. We we were totally not worthy. worthy. (laughs) Yeah. It's our Wayne's world moment. Yeah. You know, she's a very humble and, and kind and generous person, but it was really more about, we just didn't feel worthy. Cause yeah. Her and her work and her magic are just so overwhelmingly powerful. They are. And they're just, you know, power to the witch and to the woman and to the wise one in all of us. Because what an amazing time of year to to read this and to reconnect with this poem. I believe you and I both have kind of lost this poem for a little while. I lost all of those copies of Green Egg in a flood years ago. And I believe you have this in a cassette somewhere in a, in a storage unit. Probably. I do. I, I have the cassette version in a storage unit. I will admit I no longer have a cassette player, but I still have the cassette um, <laughs> recording of this. And, you know, again, I, I what I'd give for her to re-release that because it is it is very, very moving. You did a great job and, and our listeners know you did a great job. But there's nothing like Gail. There isn't. There isn't. And it can't be replicated. No, she's fantastic. And you I, are awesome and you are fantastic. Oh, thank you. You did a great job, but Gail does it so well. So yeah. it's you can tell it's a dream that she had, you know, and and I even though reading it then and now, we know that no witches here in the United States were burned. But that's not to say that in other part you know, in other parts of the world they were. And this poem doesn't necessarily say it's about Salem witch trials or a Salem burning. It's just that general, it's a metaphor. I was going to say burning can also be a metaphor. I mean, fuck what's going on right now. As I was reading that poem for this recording, I kept connecting it to the Supreme court and to all the things that are going on right now. And all the persecutions that, that women are having right now, that women, trans women, all of us. It's, it's not only scary to be honest with you. It's disgusting. Agreed. Agreed. And and bringing it back to Salem and being in Salem where witch trials did happen. And we walked some of those same places where these women who were and men who were accused walked. This poem is it kind of, especially if you ever, if you ever have, have listened to it with your eyes closed, you feel like you're put in that, in that situation of the poem. So that's why when we wanted to kick off our, our October in Salem series with this poem, I wanted to take you first to the witch house. Not that there were witches that lived there. It was actually actually the home of Jonathan Corwin, who was actually one of the judges for the Salem Witch Trials. When you think of that poem, and then you are legit standing in one of the judges' houses. So powerful. They did those Surreal. things. They did, and, and, and you know... That witch house is is pretty much more or less kind of how it was in the 1600s. It's one just of the in a few, different spot, <laughs> right? It's, it's one of the only structures in Salem original to 1692 era, by the way. And it was 35 feet ahead of where it is now, and it was moved back for Essex Street to be made. That shit energy still kind of resonates in that house. 
Yeah. And, and now as we've discussed, it's, it's definitely more the history of it, you know, you know, what happened there rather than, rather than any hauntings or, you know, any, any residual energies, although you might feel some, you know, that's kind of washed away, I guess, with all the, the traffic that's gone through it. It's very much a tourist attraction, but the, the history and the weight of it is still very, very present. Okay, a, a very brief history of the Salem witch trials. Basically, there was a lot of crap going on in the Salem area in the late 1600s anyways, but Reverend Samuel Paris became Salem Village's first ordained minister in 1689. He was not very popular. His daughter, who was nine, Elizabeth, and his niece, Abigail Williams, who was 11, started having like these fits, and a local doctor blamed witchcraft and the supernatural. Then another girl, Ann Putnam, also 11, started having like the same kind of fits. And on February 29th, after a lot of pressure from local townspeople and with pressure from the magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hathorne, the girls blamed three women for causing all these problems. They said that Tichuba, who was the Paris's slave, Sarah Good, who was a beggar, and Sarah Osborne, just an old poor woman in the village, were all witches and had bewitched them. Osborne said she was innocent, so did Sarah Good, but Tichuba confessed and said that there were even more witches in town. All three women were put in jail, and the accusations flew like wildfire around the town for the next few months, even to the point where a four-year-old, Sarah Good's daughter, Dorcas or Dorothy, was also accused of being a witch. No one was safe. There were dozens of people that were brought in for questioning. On May 27th of 1692, the governor at the time, William Phipps, ordered the establishment of a special court called Oyer, which means to hear, and Terminer to decide. And this court came up with three foolproof ways to determine if someone is a witch. One, by confession. Two, testimony of two eyewitnesses to acts of witchcraft. So basically you just needed two people to say they saw you do something witchy. Or three, something called spectral evidence, which allowed people to use dreams and visions as hard evidence. A person could say they dreamed you doing something witchy, and that would be enough to accuse you of witchcraft. The very first case brought to this special court was Bridget Bishop. She was found guilty, and June 10th, she was the first person hanged on what was later called Gallows Hill, a place now known to actually be Proctor's Ledge. A gentleman named Cotton Mather wrote a letter begging this court to not continue using spectral evidence. The court, of course, ignored this request, and five people were sentenced to hang in July, five more in August, and eight on September 22nd, 1692. It was only later that Governor Phipps, partly due to Mather's plea and really because his own wife was being questioned for witchcraft, prohibited further arrests, stopped the use of spectral evidence, and released quite a few of the accused witches and ended the court of Oyer and Terminer on October 29th. Can I just say, what the hell? That just dawned on me. So they're going to start hanging people and persecuting people on Mabin? Well, they, that was the last one, actually. That was the last group of people. But late September, seven women and one man were hung as witches on a single day. Mabin. On Mabin. That's just awful. But between June and September of that year, they killed a total of 25 people. 19 were executed as witches by hanging at Proctor's Ledge. 14 women and five men. Five others died in jail. And one, my man Giles Corey, was crushed to death. That's a lot. Bridget Bishop was the first one to be killed on June 10th of 1692. So that's a long time for people to be freaking terrified. I can't even, as we were walking through the village, we were talking about that because it's the same time period when this had happened. You know, we're, we're here at the end of September and this is, this is the height of the fear. How, how scared must these people have been when they, they first killed Bridget Bishop, and that was so bad that Judge Nathaniel Saltonsall quit. 
he was one of the people that condemned her. And after her death, he decided this was not a good idea, didn't think it was a good thing to do, and he quit. You got to remember, some of these people were new to America, and they were fleeing England and France and Spain and what have you to get away from persecution, religious persecution, this, that, and the other, to come here to get accused of it because there were, you know, we're talking about Salem, but there were witch trials and witch burnings and witch hangings um, all over Europe prior mm -hmm. to Salem. And these people were trying to start fresh and they yeah. come to America to be accused of witchcraft. And that's some shit. That is some shit. That is some shit. And, and we walked those paths at that time when it would have been at its most frightening, when people right. are being accused left and right. And as we spoke before, it didn't end until the new governor, Lord Phipps, his wife was accused. And so he decided, oh yeah, spectral evidence is bullshit. And so he ended it. But it could be so simple as, I don't like your attitude, so I'm going to start telling people that I think you're a witch because you do this and you do that. And right. like nobody, like nobody was safe. It was like wow. living in fear 24-7 if you were, and men weren't safe either. Remember, your good, your good friend Giles Corey men were not safe i think when people think of the witch trials they think that this was a female only thing and that is not the case right and when you walk around those memorials you can see everybody's name and the date that they were hung or killed right but i i, I just wanted to put it out there that generally people think witch trials they think witches witches are women not necessarily the case which by the way these folks weren't witches to begin with but right right none of them were witches most likely and Jonathan Corwin actually is the judge that replaced Nathaniel Salt and Saul when right. Nathaniel decided, you know, this isn't isn't such a great idea. I'm out. He was replaced by Jonathan Corwin. This guy lived in this house with his family for more than 40 years. So, you know, him and his family's energy has really resonated in this. And like I said, it's the only structure still standing that is directly tied to the witch trials of 1692. It is the house where several of his children did die and his wife's children. It's also the house where a lot of the accused were supposedly taken from his nephew's house, who was the sheriff. They were taken from the sheriff's house to his house to be questioned. Do you know that Dick was questioning little kids like under 10? This questioning could involve stripping the person naked and checking them for so-called witches marks which could be anything like moles, birthmarks, or scars. They could be poked with like a long, thin needle on various parts of their body to see if any were insensitive to pain. They'd be sleep deprived and beaten, forced to recite scripture perfectly, and any mistake was proof that they were a witch. And some were found innocent and many were found guilty. Interestingly, a gentleman named George Burroughs flawlessly recited the Lord's Prayer as he was standing on the platform waiting to be hung as a witch. Those present decided that, okay, he recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly. Doesn't mean we were wrong. It's got to be a devil's trick. He's still a witch. And they hung him, as planned, with zero guilt. I, I want to go back to, we, we touched on it real quick. In 1940-something, the house was actually moved 35 feet back. First of all, moving a house, you are stirring up some shit, friends. Yeah, as we've found before, any type of renovations can very often cause a what might be a minor haunting to turn into a very large haunting or something that may have been dormant before to suddenly come back to life. But you, you and I had a had a funny conversation the other day. I see a lot of, you know, I'm on a lot of these Salem Facebook pages, you know, local yokel type bullshit. A lot of people get engaged to get married on the steps in front of the witch house. Or worse yet, like the picture you showed me on the sidewalk by the road in front of the witch house, which is roughly 35 feet from where it's standing now. So which is where the original house was, which is where all this horrible stuff happened. Why would you get engaged to be married at such a horrible place? The beach is a half a mile away, folks. <laughs> and there's much better historical places in Salem if you need that. I understand being goth and witchy, but people died here. People were tortured here. People, people, were, were, que people were questioned until they agreed to and said stuff that wasn't true, including children. They would say and do anything any of us would under that type of torture. 
they did all sorts of horrific things to people in that very spot. Why would you get engaged there? It baffles me. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and say that people are attracted to Salem, the witch city, witch capital of the world. I'm not being discriminative, but I feel that sometimes people don't know enough about the history of certain things. Maybe these people just don't know the house was moved. Maybe they don't take in the horrific things that happened there. That is not a place I would want to tie with my future love and happiness. Agreed. There are several sides to Salem. There's the side that I reveled in as a teenager going there and meeting real life witches other than myself for the very first time. I went there and the magic of the city and all the witches and the paganism and it was open and it was everywhere and it was vibrant and you could obviously buy it for $9.99. Right. <laughs> but there was real magic to be had there too and real connections. It was a very magical thing. But at the same time, I was still cognizant that there was a history of people, non-witches, who had been brutally persecuted and tortured and murdered here. And, and you, there's two sides of it. And I think you can't, you shouldn't really forget either one. Right, right. You know, I, I understand the touristy part of it. I get it. I was that tourist here in Salem at one time. Totally get it. But go get engaged at the House of Seven Gables. Get engaged right. on the waterfront. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful places. Go two houses down to the Ropes Mansion from Hocus Pocus, for God's sakes. Oh, my God. Perfect spot. I loved getting our pictures taken there. How fun was that to go to the Hocus Pocus house? In the gardens out back. They were so beautiful. If you're going to get engaged in Salem, the gardens at the Rope Mansion are literally two houses down from the witch house. And no bad juju. It's the Hocus Pocus Mansion. It's right. gorgeous. The gardens are gorgeous. There's a little free library. Bring a book to trade. And there's all sorts of fun things there. How fun. Why in front? Why? Witchy-wise, I feel like it's a bad omen. I do too. Yeah, witchy-wise, I feel like it's definitely not, a, not an auspicious start to a relationship. I would not but, think you so. Know, this, I, I will say this. For being from the 1600s, I think this house was built in around 1640. This house is gorgeous. I would live in it tomorrow. It's got that lead glass on it. I, I remember the tour guide telling you something about why the house is black. Yes. That black house. Tell me why it's black again. I don't remember. There's quite a few throughout the city. If you see any of the houses that are like this dark coal black, and we will have a link to some pictures. They look like, they look like they're the wood, but black. Yes. It's a special kind of paint that helps preserve the wood and protect it against the elements and the sun and all of that. And they'll tell you about it if you take any of the tours, which I highly recommend. Take any of them that you can. It does help the Preservation Society, and hell, it helps the tour guides tip them well. We're going to switch over into our on-location, not-sound-room, Shell's backyard. So we'll go more in-depth together as we talk uh, about the witch house. Guys, this is good stuff. You just need to hold on to your seat and grab a pipe because you're about to hear some good shit. And listen closely and see if you can hear any crickets, EVPs, or dudes laughing in the background. Or bong hits. Oh, there's lots of those. <laughs> First of all, let me take a hit off this pipe before we get into the witch house. So what do we have packed in your silicone pipe, Shell? Is this your weed or my weed? Because um, we're this, together. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is my weed. This is Endgame. This came from Happy Valley. Oh, I smell that. It smells so good. Remember, like I've talked about this so many times with that fruity flavor, but you have had an interesting description of Endgame. Oh, man. That's delicious. You call it, what do you call it? It tastes like the old days. Dad weed. It tastes like my dad weed. Whenever we would light this up, when we were on our way to Salem today <laughs> and we would light this up, my first impression was that smells like my dad's house when he'd been hanging out with his friends when I was a kid. <laughs> it very much smells like the weed I used to get. But it's still got that like fruity taste. It does. It has today's density. And you said you had to grind it up. And I, yeah. see, the, I see the pouch that you've got it in. You have it all ground. But do you see now why I was saying you can't really stuff and shove this? No. Because you can't. It doesn't really smoke. You waste it because it just doesn't burn. Shell, the first thing you did when you showed me the bag... You, it looked like a nug. I didn't realize you had ground it up because you showed me a huge... It like compacted back into like nug shape. It's so resiny yeah. and so crisply condensed back into a nug. It's beautiful. And it has that green light 
slightly gasoline taste with a real sweetness to it. It's it's beautiful. 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 It's beautiful. It's like a summer weed. I, would I don't even remember say, what I don't even remember what the THC is on this one. And it's like it's so good you don't even give a shit. Oh, I don't care. I'm high. You're high. I can see you're high. And I we're can together. see you're high. <laughs> because we're together. So let's tell them what we, well, let's talk about what we did today. We went to the witch house. We went to the witch house. This house is actually called the Jonathan Corwin house. Jonathan Corwin was a judge during the witch trials. And actually the witch house, um, the Jonathan Corwin house is the only building in current Salem that has direct ties to the Salem witch trials of 1692. But no witch ever actually lived there. No, 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 no. It's no, called no, no. the witch house, but a fucking judge lived there. Yeah, no, he was a judge. Um, he was a jerk. Holy crap. And you saw some of the stuff in the house. Like, Ooh. not a kind man. So before we kind of get into, oh, I do want to mention, backtrack, backtrack. I do want to mention, the house was moved 35 feet. Right. Where the house is sitting now is not actually where Judge Corwin interviewed every single person who but was can accused. you see how the way salem is kind of put together that if they didn't move it back 35 feet it would be like street curb front door right absolutely they had to move it back and this was in the 1940s and what happened was the town was going to put a roadway through there and they were just going to tear down this house and some people got together and raised about forty six thousand dollars I believe, in the 1940s. That's a lot of money in the 1940s. To move the whole house back 35 feet in order to preserve it. And that actually was one of the things that kicked off the Preservation Society in Salem. Well, I was kind of laughing because I had told you earlier today, you know, we had gone there and we're going to talk in a few minutes about the vibes we got there and, and such. The guy was not nice. He was no. a judge. He persecuted innocent people. That house... <laughs> held a lot of negativity and people will go and stand on the front walk and bow down on one knee and ask their sweet love to be theirs forever and ever in holy matrimony and when you think about it considering they move the house back 35 feet where people are kneeling down asking their <laughs> sweet love to marry them is, is like right, right where, where this guy must have sat at his freaking hearth deciding who was going to live and die that day. Exactly. And they decided this shit on something called ephemeral evidence, spectral evidence. And what that was was a dream. Someone could walk in and say, I had a dream about my neighbor's wife and she did all sorts of things that only a demon would do to me. I think you need to take her in and they would. That, that would be evidence. And that's fucked up. So I do find it kind of humorous that for as much negativity came from the occupant of that house, um, the owner of that house, and just such the negative connotation that people will rush right there to get engaged. It's just, I mean, tourists, come on. But it was built in the early, in the 1620s, so it's over 400 years old. That, and, and, you know, when we went in it, it kind of has that feel like it does the low ceilings the very wide plank you're floors. short and you were almost <laughs> you, you could reach up to that ceiling i could i am very tiny so i did not once have to duck my head not on any of the dormer roofs not on any of the doorways that have settled over the years because i am a very very short person however you yep. and your love and my husband are all very tall amazon people and, you and had, had to, to duck, duck. yeah <laughs> Yeah, but so yeah, these were older houses and they were built to stay warm and they were built very short and, and you can feel it when you walk in. Jonathan Corwin was a judge who worked for the court of Oyer and Terminer in Salem, Massachusetts at the time of the witch trials, which took place between what, June and September? I think it was of May. Yeah, it was earlier in the spring of 1692 and then it kind of ended when the was it the mayor or the governor of the town his wife it was the governor and you know it's kind of funny it's like oh you know you can fuck with everybody else's wife but when you get to the governor's wife then hey hold on wait let's stop this right so what happened was it they accused the governor's wife was it lady phipps it was lady phipps so when his wife was accused then suddenly he steps in and says oh no 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 you can't use the spectral evidence you need to use real actual physical evidence and so that kind of completely overturned what this court had been using and what jonathan corwin had been using 
So he brings all of these accused that go from the sheriff's house, where there was possibly torture there, right. to his house, where he interrogates them further to determine if the spectral evidence is going to stick. And then they go from there, possibly, to being hung. Correct. So this house has bad energy. And, and you know, I just, like, I want to jump into how did you feel? What energy-wise, the minute you walked in that door, how did you feel? Suffocated. Oppressed is a good word as well. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking oppressed. I... I didn't expect to feel a lot because a, a big vibe that I got as I walk around the city is that it's beautiful. The architecture, the history. I love it. I love the witch vibe. It's I worn out. But it is worn out. It is touristy. And I love it for what it is. For the, I do love the history of it, even as sad and as, as horrible as it is. There's beauty and there's interesting things and there's lessons to be learned there, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so I didn't really fully expect to, I, I know people talk about hearing children. I mean, there were several of his children and his wife's children that died in that house. There was a four-year-old child that he interrogated in that fucking house for being a witch. How is a four-year-old a witch? Right? Somebody dreamt about it. Oh my God. Fucking people. But I know people hear children there. I know yeah. they see orbs. I know they hear him. But I wasn't really expecting to see much of that. However... When I walked into that room in front of that hearth, just like you said, I could feel that dread creep up my legs. And it, it was that sense of there's nowhere to go. I can't do, there's nothing I can do. And I kind of, I had more of a sense, and, and like I explained to you shortly after we left, more like from the kid's point of view. And it was, don't make daddy mad. Don't make daddy mad. Like that kind of scared, tiptoeing around, don't want to create any conflict, stay in the shadows, you know, that don't make daddy mad. Like it was very much that, but also in a sense, I felt this very exhausted, like this, this exhausted annoyance with tourism. Yeah. Why are you in my house? Once I got past that room, like when I first came in, it was oppressive. It was, it was suffocating. I very much, almost like a, the beginnings of a panic attack where your chest feels tight and you can't breathe. That panicky feeling. Once I got past that at first room, I didn't get a lot of anything. It was just like, this is an old house and it was tired. Does it, it feels like the energy is worn out of it. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean... The moving of it probably stirred things up, and that's probably where a lot of the sightings and things came from. But, you know, how many thousands of tourists go through it every October? Now, I didn't see anything, nor did I expect to, and that's partially because you cannot go into the house at night. Right. It is a daytime attraction. And with um, all those people. Right. I mean, get me in that house, 1130, 12 o'clock at night, by myself, and then let's talk. I mean, we were there at, what, like 10.30 in the morning, you know, and I think they close at 4.30 in the afternoon. So when are people seeing these orbs, I guess is my question. I'm not saying they're not. I'm right. not negating anybody's experience. But when you're there in the dead of daylight with 50 other people going in and out around you, I, yeah. I just, I I'll have know. to look into it. I know that... From the research that I did, it appeared that a lot of these accounts seem to be older. So okay. I'll have to look and see if there's any records of whether they had later times where people could go into them in the past. And I have actually seen um, online folks that'll go by in the evening hours and after dark because, you know, I mean, it's, it's a city. You walk right. around and they will see apparitions looking at them out the windows. Yeah, that I can understand. Or seeing an orb or a that light is where it on shouldn't the be. inside of the house. Yeah. That is not a reflection from a street light. It is not a reflection from a car sitting at that intersection. Right. Um, there is a light from within the house that can be seen through like an upstairs window. So that I could believe, but there's just no access at night. So what are you seeing? You know right. Yeah, we'll have to look and see. I'll have to look before this episode airs. I will. Future Layla will jump in here with an edit and say, you know, whether they used to have late or nighttime ones. Future Layla here. I'm not exactly sure about nighttime tours. I know there's some that go on at night on the outside of these historic buildings, 
but I can't find any evidence of nighttime tours allowed in the buildings, and I can find no pictures taken inside the buildings at night. So, I don't know. Future Layla out. But not to say that people wouldn't catch those photos during the day or the And it evening. could have been workers. Could have been. Very well could have been. It also could be people, like, later in the year, the sun sets earlier. Maybe they're getting a darker corner or right. something. Right. I just, I, I do think that some of the nighttime pictures uh, that I've seen could lead one to think that they definitely had seen an apparition through yeah. the window. But my, my feelings definitely, we seem to have the same ones coming in. You definitely got more of the, the children. and Right. And I think you might have gotten more of, of the Corwin himself vibe. Yeah, or the accused coming but in. But in the same respect, I also feel that the energy there and the vibe there, it's kind of worn out. You know, yeah, I agree. It's kind of worn out. Like maybe that vibe 200 or even 100 years ago was a hell of a lot different than what that vibe is today. And I think that it has just been saturated with everybody's energy, yeah. you know. But go to it for sure. Go to it for the history. Oh my God, so worth it. So, so worth interesting. it. Yeah, they, definitely so much interesting things to see there just for the history of it. I mean, it's such an old building. Oh, yeah, no, totally worth it. I mean, it's like nine bucks for adults. I mean, you're not going to get anything cooler for nine bucks. Right. How often are you going to be able to walk through a 400-year-old building with that kind of history? Exactly. And, you know, one thing I thought was interesting, you look out the windows. First of all, it's like that lead glass mm -hmm. that's kind of warpy to begin with. You're looking out the same windows that someone was looking out 400 years ago. And yeah. I even said to you, I'm like, the view we're seeing is completely different because we were looking down onto that main That's intersection. Right. That's right. Whereas Corwin and his family would have been looking out maybe on a field. But it was just interesting to kind of look out that same window. Yeah, I had the same I had the same impression. You know, being up there and looking out those windows. Now the house is in a style where there's very little ornamentation on the outside and the windows right. are very, very small. When you're inside, particularly in the spot where we had that conversation, it's almost like a little study or something at the top of the stairs. Right. And we were looking out. There's like three windows there. And we're looking out those windows and the sunlight is like pouring in. And it almost seemed like such a pleasant place to have a little office. And that fucker probably but sat then, there deciding but to then kill you know people. What, yeah, then you know what was actually being decided at that desk. Yeah. And looking out that window, you're exactly right. Those windows are exactly in the same place, even if it's not the exact glass. Someone, just like us, stood right there and looked out those same windows 400 years ago. That's cool. That's wild. Worth nine bucks. Worth nine bucks. Very much so. <laughs> Very much so. And particularly, again, I wasn't expecting to get that strong of a psychic vibe, and I right. did get one, and I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised. But I don't, it, it, you know, I, I think that sometimes when you have this vision in your head of, Oh, I'm going to Salem, Massachusetts, and I'm going to go to the witch house. You have an idea in your head of what kind of vibe and how strong of a vibe you might get. And it's sure. not, it, it's, it's different. It's different than you're going to expect. Because, yeah. yeah, the history is there for sure. It's not that you're not going to have any sort of feeling whatsoever, but you're not going to have like some overwhelming experience. Some people do. I remember coming here when I was a teenager and it was wonderful no the i energy mean, and the vibe is so cool no 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 i'm talking more about paranormally at the oh. witch house oh yeah oh yeah yeah totally totally <laughs> two different things yeah good no. point no i think paranormally at the witch house any expectation you have in your head you should throw out the window yes go with an open go with yeah. open psychic eye go with yep. open heart go with an open mind and then that's what i tried to do because we know so much like literally we were waiting to cross the street right. i'm blabbing about Blah, 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 blah. And here's the these people. So this is funny, guys. So Layla is going off. We're at this crosswalk because, you know, we have to abide by crosswalk laws. <laughs> and Layla just starts ranting off this, like, Wikipedia shit off her head. She's like her own walking Wikipedia. I was giving, like, my own little ghost tour to you So and these tourists, not that we weren't being touristy, but these tourists at the crosswalk turn around and are like, ooh, that's good information. And, like... All like, you're the greatest tour guide. And we're like, yeah, we're just here crossing the street. <laughs> like, Hi, we just do a podcast. 
It was funny because we actually followed those same people to the witch house. We did, we did. And I continued to spout random facts as we're walking through the house. We didn't need a guided tour. We had Layla. Yeah, we know this stuff. But this this house is, I don't want to say paranormally underwhelming, but definitely any expectation you have throughout the window and go in there with an open mind and be appreciative with the fact that you're in an almost 400 year old house. Yes. And for the, and, and, you know, kind of feel it out, suss it out for the real vibes that are there underneath all the touristy vibes and right. the tired vibes, you know, kind of be open to what's going to be there because literally walking up the front where, okay, you're going to have to wait in line to get your Instagram photo. Right. Be polite. We waited. Right. <laughs> When you walk up and you look at the house, it looks like a witch house. It does. It looks like someone evil lived there. And we are going to we we are going to post uh, some photos of our our visit to the witch house. Um, so definitely check out our Instagram. Perfect for the October vibe, right? You know? So yeah, the witch house. Nineteen people hung, accused. Judge Jonathan Corwin, kind of a dick asshole, right? Super dick. Yeah, thumbs Me, down for Judge Jonathan Corwin. But definitely a thumbs up for if you come to Salem, go to the witch house, spend the nine bucks. Totally, yes. totally got to do it. Please do, because the money is well worth it. It's not a lot. If you have to ration which ones you can go to, pick which one you want to go to. And the money goes to the preservation to continue it going, which is also exactly. equally important. That's exactly the point. You know, it, it goes to the preservation society and they're doing such good things downtown. There's plaques on everything. They're preserving the wood. The tour guides are fantastic. What was our tour guide's name? Katie with a C. You rock, Shell. Katie with a C. Thank you, Shell. Was a wonderful tour guide at the House of the Seven Gables. She had so many facts and just gave it all in a rapid fire, yet easy yeah. to understand pace. Yeah. Because there's a lot of information there. There is. And, you know, that that's the thing with Salem is, you know, you take the witch trials aside and there's still a shit ton of history in this exactly. joint. So, you know, come here for all of it and just kind of soak it all in and, and definitely. But the witch house has to be on your list. It really does. Because even if you're just a history buff and aren't even into the whole witch thing. You have to go to the witch house. You do. Go to the, go, because they, they have, that's the house that had the poppet, right? Yeah. Ooh. They had the poppet that was created. The house is decorated with different. Period. Different period displays. And a lot of them are from the time period of the witch trials. It's a self-guided tour. So they each have a little explanation beside them. And one of the first things you'll see in the great room, when you first walk in on the tour what you'll find when you first walk in is a poppet and Bridget Bishop, this was her poppet. Apparently Bridget Bishop was the first victim to be executed. Part of the evidence presented against her was the claim that workmen found poppets buried within the walls of her home. So what you're seeing is one of the poppets that they found encased in glass. And they say that this particular doll or quote unquote poppet was found within the walls of a first period home in New England. It seems to be something that was kind of a thing back then. They say that that poppet in particular was found in a New England home. So I don't know if this particular poppet was Bridget Bishop's or just one like it from the period. Because she was known for that, that was brought up at her trial. And right. That was one of the evidence they used against her. But I mean, it looks creepy. Didn't it look creepy? Very like, creepy. And the vibe from it, I got, was, was creepy. not good. Like, yeah. I was getting, like, 1600s Chucky doll. Like, yeah. seriously. There's definitely, whoever made that puppet made it for a reason. Right, and it wasn't a friendly one. No, and it's still, the energy's still there. So definitely check out the puppet. Seriously. Want a seriously weird, creepy vibe, check it out. I would like to point out that at the witch house, there is a portrait of Samuel Seawall. He is actually, because there was a few judges, Corwin wasn't the only one, but Seawall, he was the only one of the nine judges known to have apologized after the witch trials. And, you know, that's an awesome fact to point out. Somebody yes. had the balls to be like, man, I fucked up. And the court was told at one point to quit the shit with the ephemeral evidence, that that was not evidence, that they shouldn't use spectral evidence, and they continued to do so anyways. These guys were drunk with fucking power. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, they had the power, 
they they had the ability to do this shit and they got away with it. Oh yeah, they were the wealthy traders at the time. They were the merchants and they gave themselves these positions basically. The witch trials were a travesty. And in America, no one was burned. They were hung and pressed. Correct. There was not one witch burned in the United States of America at any time, whether it be before 1776 or after. All burnings were usually in France, Spain, and England. In America, they were hangings, drownings, and pressings. That's right. Thank you, historian Shell. (laughs) I love it. Thank you all for joining us on this first of our Salem kickoff episodes. And there's going to be more. So stay tuned next week because we got more Salem stories because we are together. I love when we're together. We should all be together. together. Move to Salem. Everybody, all our listeners want you to move to Salem. I want to move to Salem. Listeners, email Layla, thestonedwitcheshour at gmail.com and tell her to move her ass to Salem. Oh, that would be nice, but it's cold there. So what? So what? I don't know. So what? It's which city you will say. That's a good point. And you're there. It's which city? Uh, Beaches. Beaches. I guess we'll have to hear what our listeners have to say. But yeah, this traveling witch is definitely on the East Coast for a little while. Stay tuned. We're going to hit up more historical Salem places, more haunted Salem places. Stay witchy, folks, because this is going to be a witchy month. We're going to talk about some ghosty stuff and our paranormal stuff, but it's going to be kind of more in that Salem witchy way. So all you witches, grab your brooms because we're going riding. Stay haunted, stay high, and stay right here for more The Stoned Witches Hour, Salem, Massachusetts edition. Peace out, sauerkraut. Later.